Welcome back to another episode of the podcast. I'm Kendall Y. And I'm Jordan Guess. All right. And we're back. Number 16. 16. In a bear market. We're still doing it week in, week out. Official bear market. Yeah. You kind of love to see it if you're young and you have a long time horizon. It'll be interesting. We'll see if the if the if things pivot at some point this year. If the Fed pivots, all all signs indicate that surely before the end of the year, the Fed will pivot. Now, how far they go, I don't know. We'll see. Well, they can't go too far, right? That's their issue. I mean, things are already breaking. Things are breaking. I agree. Yeah. So, all right. So today is kind of a special episode um, because we're we're just going to we're going to do a little market update like we normally would might do, and then um, a little bit later on, we're going to spend the majority of the show answering some questions that we received from a listener. And uh, so, yeah, there's just a lot of new people coming into the space at these price points saying, oh man, well, I should have bought it 20 when it was 20 and now it is 20 again. So, um, but I need to understand this thing. So we're going to uh, take a break from the news a little bit um, and yeah, dive in just some Bitcoin questions. And yeah, so if you ever have any questions, uh, just feel free to shoot them to us probably just via dms on twitter is best way right now um we might we might uh, polish that up a little bit in the future but well let's first let's take a look at just some news just where the markets kind of stand so today is thursday june 23rd um and yes it's uh still not great out there right oh definitely not Definitely not great. Um, let's see, where are we at? Where are we at? Interestingly enough, today there seems to be a risk on appetite today because I'm looking at Ethereum's plus six and a half percent. Yeah. AVAX and Solar plus eight percent, and Bitcoin is plus three percent. So, but <laughs> you just see volatility. I mean, the volatility is going to be through the roof. Some an interesting chart to pay attention to. Here's a little, this is some alpha I'm going to give away for free. All right. You ready for this? Mm. Pay attention. Okay. Um, interesting chart to watch is Sol ETH. So Solana versus Ethereum. Mm. Um, because Solana is considered a higher risk asset than, than uh, Ethereum. And Ethereum is considered a higher risk asset than Bitcoin. So Solana is pretty far out the risk curve. That said, um, Solana has, uh, how do I put this? It is the most interesting of all the altcoins from a purely speculative perspective. So um, it's kind of, in a way, the Sol ETH chart and Sol BTC charts, you can see a lot of uh, forward-looking uh, behaviors, sort of. I mean, that's sort of how risk risk assets work broadly, but I specifically think that Sol Solana is high signal in terms of risk assets. 
Okay. And where is it moving? Where has it been moving in the last week? So let's see. If you look over the last, because if you, what's interesting is if you look at since uh, Terra collapsed, mm-hmm. um, I'm pulling it up right now. Since Terra collapsed, Solana is up 30% on Ethereum, which is, that should, I mean, that raises alarm bells in my eyes for Ethereum, if I'm, if I'm an Ethereum person, because you're telling me that during, ever since this chaos began, uh, you're telling me that um, Solana has actually outperformed Ethereum. Typically, you, with risk assets, you would think the opposite. Yeah. Um, and it hasn't just outperformed it by a little bit, outperformed it by 30%, which is a lot. Um, and then it's roughly, Solana and BTCs are, are actually roughly break-even since the since the Terra-Luna collapse. Hmm. But uh, there's okay. certainly, there's certainly, I mean, in my opinion, there seems to be a little, a little bit of a, of a divergence um, between... I guess what I'm trying to say is Ethereum is not performing as well as everything else, Bitcoin or not Bitcoin. Another another chart you can look at is BTC.D, which stands, mm-hmm. it's the Bitcoin dominance um, ticker. Yeah. So it tracks, it tracks Bitcoin market cap relative to all other, all other crypto market cap. And what's been interesting is that the BTC dominance chart has actually been going down since in this bear market, yeah. which, again, which again, you would not expect. You would expect Bitcoin to be the flight to safety, um, but that hasn't been the case. Um, I mean, if you look year to date, though, it's, it's up 10%, almost 10%. But if you look like month, True. True, true. Down true. about two and a half. The but uh, yeah, the point I was trying to make actually was that um, if you would if BTC dominance were going down, you would expect Ethereum to be outperforming Bitcoin, but it's right. not. See, no. Ethereum is actually performing the worst. Right. So. Yeah, I started listening to a podcast recommended by uh, an NFT friend um, about the the merger and uh couldn't get through it i was just like oh man this is hard hard to listen to so um but i know i have seen some friends having a lot of fun up in uh new york this week for nft nyc so i'm glad that they're still um that they're still working on it so definitely have some good friends who are doing i think I do think they're doing some cool things. It's just like, it's tough for them to maintain the excitement that they were able to um, garner, you know, late last year. So, yeah, but that is interesting. So essentially you're saying, take a look at Solana. Solana has NFTs too. Okay. I know. I don't. Yeah. I've heard that. I've even heard Cardano has NFTs. So does AVAX. Yeah. Well, you would say Ethereum is still, it's still the the 
leader in terms of that activity. Oh, for sure. For sure. Okay. Okay. Well, we'll keep an eye on Solana. Um, yeah, that was, that was just some free, some free alpha in terms of the broader market. Yeah. Like, I guess not much has changed in the past week. I mostly, I, I expect volatility to just continue to destroy things. Um, oh, yeah. we did, we did see Bitcoin drop below its previous cycle high, which was a first ever, yeah. which, you know, it's a first, there's a first for everything. I got to say, it's actually not super surprising that that happens. And I, I expect that, I expect that to continue to happen because, um, as your market cap matures, like you just don't get that same level of performance as you used to. So it was really wasn't all that surprising to me. Yeah. I mean, it had such a, just had such a run up that it makes sense. And there are some forced selling sellings out there now. And I mean, I know we, ta- I, I don't think we talked about it on the pod, but um, yeah, I think both of us are in the camp of, we could see it go lower mm-hmm. even still. So, yeah, I mean, the broader macro landscape is extremely harsh right now. I think a lot of people in the, in, in the, in finance are, very much depending on the fed to come back in and step in and prop asset prices back up. But you see, if everybody thinks that way, then it's going to be less likely to happen. And yeah. it's not good. So what I'm saying is it's not good that, that I see so many people depending on that. Yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> I almost feel like Janet Yellen is the new Jim Cramer, whatever she says, like the opposite's going to happen. <laughs> and um, she you know, she was essentially coming, she came out, I think it was this week, earlier this week. And she was like, yeah, we, you know, recession is not like, it's not for sure that it's going to happen more or less. And, (laughs) and, you know, she was also the one who was like, inflation is transitory. And just seems like, it just seems like she's always uh, just a little wrong. (laughs) At least she has been for a while. So I don't know. It's hard to beat the, it's hard to beat the Kramer trade. That is true. That is true. She'll, she needs a longer, she needs a longer track record of being wrong consistently, but she is, uh, she's well on her way. I think she also just creeps me out. I can't, I can't listen to her. I don't know. When I hear her talk, I, I, I see an actor or an actress, I should say, like, it is so blatantly obvious that she's just like reading from a script and I'm like, I mean, that's all yeah. of our leaders right now. They're all just reading from. It's like I think yeah. Elon. But you could at least out, be, right? you could at least be good at it. <laughs> yeah, but it didn't Elon say whoever is writing what goes on the teleprompter is actually pulling the strings? <laughs> Did he say that? Yeah. Yeah, that's I think cool. he said that earlier in the year. So, which I agree with. Um, so, all right. Yeah, it's. I mean, um, yeah, so not much has changed. Uh, there's still blood in the streets. Um, and, uh, oh, real quick news, just just on a positive note, um, Kendall and I got down to the Lexington Bitcoin meetup this week on Tuesday, which was, uh, which was good. We enjoyed it a lot. Got to meet um, new people. And um, all I'll say on that is really encouraging, even in a down market, uh, going, going to an in-person event is, um, it just lifts your spirits because, you know, 
you, it can get lonely if you're if it's just you and your Twitter thread and uh, or Twitter feed and Wall Street Journal articles, you know. So get out there and go meet some people. Yeah, definitely. I booked I booked a hotel room for the August Nashville meetup. Oh so man, look at you! I will be there. You're ready to rock and roll. Yeah. So love yeah, it. love it. So now, yeah. now is the time. I think I don't know if we said this already, but now is the time since the market has capitulated to, at least to some degree. Hopefully, that'll be it. But we'll see. That uh, now is the time where you know, like the smart investors will, who have uh, sort of avoided crypto and Bitcoin for, for up until this point, now is the point where they will start seriously asking themselves, okay, let me like learn more about this. So we'll have a new wave of, uh, of entrance. And these are, these are the people that are higher signal entrance. You know, when people yeah. come in in a, in a, in a bull market mania, there, there's no signal. It's a bunch of noise. So pay attention to the people coming in now. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's all, honestly, for me, it's, it's all very exciting. I feel like uh, there's just this undercurrent of innovation that is uh, that's churning and trying to, I'm trying to be a part of that. Um, especially when the, all the people out there are like, I told you so. Um, so we will let them do that and I'll just delete their numbers out of my phone. <laughs> I'm just kidding. All right. So, okay. So I think that's good. Let's move to this Q and a uh, section that we've got. So, um, so we've got a list of questions here. Um, and yeah, we can kind of just, I can kind of just read them off, read off of one at a time and we can kind of just riff on them for a little bit. That sound good. Let's do it. All right. So first one is uh, talking about what are protections against Bitcoin holders if the majority shareholders in BTC come together and flood or starve the market for their own interest? Seems mm -hmm. like it could be a concern since the supply is fixed. Okay. So <clears throat> first thing here is that holding Bitcoin gives you no political authority within the network. Um, you, this is counter to proof of stake networks where the largest holders do have authority in the network because they are the writers of the blocks. So just a, important to note the distinction between proof of work and proof of stake in the, with respect to this question. Mm -hmm. um, now, what they can do is they could crash the market. And um, that's obviously concerning for some people. Um, and I would, I should, I'll also say <clears throat> one of the largest issues with Bitcoin currently from an investor's standpoint is the concentration. So there are a number of Bitcoin whales that have, enormous positions in Bitcoin. I mean, enormous. Uh, Satoshi, assuming he's alive today, is probably the wealthiest person on the earth in terms of liquid assets, in terms of assets that he could liquidate. Um, 
and he's not the only one. There are other people. There are other people that that are large whales. So the point is, is that um, concentration is an issue with Bitcoin. The thing is, that's not the thing you want to. If you're thinking about a long-term investment, what you need to concern yourself with is something called the Gini coefficient. G I N I Gini coefficient. I will link it in the show notes. <laughs> And what the, what the Gini coefficient is, is it tracks the distribution of wealth over time. And so if it's positive, I don't know, I don't know the arbitrary directions, but for the sake of argument, if it's positive, that means that wealth is becoming um, more concentrated over time, which means that the wealthier are becoming wealthier and the poor are becoming poorer. And then the inverse, if it's the other, if it's the other direction, then the wealthier are becoming poorer over time and the poorer are becoming wealthy over time. Obviously as a society, we prefer the latter, right? We, we don't want the wealthier to become wealthy, wealthier because they already have sufficient wealth. Um, and so the Gini coefficient of Bitcoin is trending in the correct direction. And this is actually in contrast with the US dollar. Mm. The U.S. dollar has a Gini coefficient that is trending in the wrong direction. Most assets that are proof of stake functionally, uh, which is what the U.S. dollar is, will trend in the wrong direction because the people with the wealth have a natural incentive to acquire more wealth. Um, so anyway, proof of work, very important. Um, in terms of do I see it as a risk of like whales in the concentration crashing the market? It's a risk, but it's just like any other risk. So you have to calculate how much you think it's worth. And yeah. to me, it's not worth that much. Yeah. And I mean, you have the same risk in, you know, with gold as well. If there are like, you know, parties that hold a lot of the gold and then they all, all of a sudden they dumped a lot of the gold. Um, you know, that can drive the price down too. So I don't think it's a unique issue for Bitcoin necessarily. Um, and especially right. if you, if you hold, you know, if you're a holder and you're a believer, then it's like, don't really have an incentive necessarily to at least flood the market with new liquidity. Um, now starving, that is, I would say starving the market, that's probably the the one that seems more likely just because of the whole kind of hodl mentality that is out there. Right. Um, but at certain price points, people, people will, they will start to feel more comfortable spending their Satoshis. Um, once, once certain levels of market cap are, are attained. And so I think it was Preston who was talking about it in his talk with, um, Peter, McCormick is pretty much like, yeah, you'll end up spending, you don't, you won't want to hold all the Bitcoin anymore. You'll want to actually spend some of that to exchange it for equity, whether it's equity in companies or equity in, you know, real estate or whatever. But, you know, you end up at the end of the day, if Bitcoin's going to become a reserve currency, then it, it's, it's just a means to what you can get out of it. Like Bitcoin, it's just the same as a dollar, right? It doesn't have, the only value it has is what can it be traded for, right? 
And so eventually people will say, well, what real things do I want with this? You know, whether it's companies that provide a good or service to a lot of people or actual things like oil, you know, things that they really need. You can't really survive off of Bitcoin alone, right? It's not going to give you the energy in your body that you need to survive or water, things like that. So, so anyways, I think well, that, that that will kind of fix itself over time as the market cap increases. Yeah, the, the Gini coefficient is going the right direction. Yeah. The, um, the other thing that I'll say is that Bitcoin is like arguably, I don't know if you can say the most or like certainly one of the most relevant final free markets in the world. There's very little regulation over this market. It trades 24-7 globally on high-tech platforms um and it's it's truly the it's truly the wild west so this is in comparison to other investment opportunities such as equities or bonds or currencies or whatever and um so ultimately ultimately you have to ask yourself the question do you think that a manipulated market will outperform or do you think that a free market will outperform and what's your time time horizon um you know in my opinion which take it for whatever it's worth it's not financial advice is that over long durations free market absolutely dominates absolutely dominates now short to midterm you'll have many you can manipulate things to to your favor but over the long term uh, there's always a price to pay. The it's like the Lannisters; they always pay their debts. Yeah, and I think I heard that. Um, I've, I've heard ten percent of the population of the world, and I've also heard twenty five percent of the population of the world, which are, those are two different numbers, uh, are holders of Bitcoin in some capacity. Um, but even if you take the low end, if you take ten percent of the eight billion, I mean, that is a ton of people. And for the, for how young the asset is. So, um, but yeah, I mean, I know Coinbase definitely, they uh, disclosed that in their um, IPO filings. Mm -hmm. Like Satoshi coming back is a risk. Yeah. If Satoshi came back and all of a sudden got greedy and wanted dollars instead of Bitcoin, that would tank the, the, uh, the market price of Bitcoin if he sold his close to um, 1 million Bitcoins, him, what, if it's a group, whatever it is. So, but as of today, those have sat in the same wallet, those have never moved. So, so yeah, that's a, but that's a good point. I'm glad we were able to address that. I think Kendall's point is really important. The main thing is that we're trending in the correct direction and what's your other alternative U S dollar that's trending in the wrong direction. And it's obvious that it is obviously rich. The rich are getting richer and there's no, <laughs> there is no sign of that changing at all. All I mean, of the incentives long, are built as long as holders, as long as politics reigns supreme, then the wealth gap will diverge. Yeah. That's my opinion, at least. And that, and, and we haven't even seen 
we haven't even seen the worst of it. Not even close. I mean, probably, it would be- probably not. I heard, I was reading about some, some things going on in China today. And it was like, I was like, Oh my gosh, this is like, I don't even want to go into it, but it's not good. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, just look at Sri Lanka. If you haven't, if you're listening to this and you haven't glanced at what's happening in Sri Lanka right now, just go take a look. I mean, I think it's a good um, precursor for what happens when there's such a divide, a wealth divide. And the thing is, everyone talks about it. Um, Bitcoiners just think that this is one potential solution, um, especially in these early days of empowering people who maybe don't have a lot to get in early and grow their wealth. But the other issue is obviously people who are poor, they, um, you know, there's not a lot of wiggle room too. So we're trying to help people understand, like, is this something that you should get into? Do you have, do you have any wiggle room to do that? And uh, if it goes down, like it is right now, if you bought at 70 and now it's down at 20, are you able to stomach that? Or did that really hurt you? Um, And so, okay. I I will say one thing real quick on the pomp. I know the pomp interview with uh, (laughs) on Barry Weiss's podcast was kind of a shit show, but the one thing he did say that I thought, wow, this is actually really interesting is that the Bitcoin, the whole Bitcoin movement, say whatever you want about it. It is driving probably the most financial education that has ever happened um, in this country. People actually asking questions of like, what is dollar cost averaging? Like basic things like well, that. Think about this too. I was thinking about this earlier today. I, I, I'm of the opinion that if you want to be successful in life, the, um, the strategy that will almost guarantee success is to follow where the successful people are going. So mm-hmm. follow, follow the smart people is in my opinion is the thing to think to do. And like, if you look back, I think in the early 2010s, there was a, a boom in intellectual power, which went to Silicon Valley. And that's, and I think it takes years for that, for that value to truly realize itself. Um, and I think that what we saw during COVID and like all the tech stocks was sort of like the, the, the bang at the end of, of all that intellectual power. And um, so if you ask me today, where's all the power, where's all the intellectual power going? I mean, my opinion is it's going into Bitcoin. Um, so we can talk all day about the fundamentals of Bitcoin and all that's very important. But uh, one thing to just keep in the back of your head is like, which people, where are the smart people going? And I think that they're going to Bitcoin. Yeah, I agree. That's the thing that makes me the most bullish on Bitcoin is taking a look around at the community of people. Um, all right, let's move to the next to the next question. All right, so all right, so this one's pretty much just like asking about the mining of Bitcoin. So it says, can you break down the mining of Bitcoin? Um, what is a Bitcoin miner physically doing to be compensated with Bitcoin? Okay. Uh, funny story about this. Darren Feinstein tells a story. Darren Feinstein is one of the OG Bitcoin miners and on like an industrial scale. And 
he was one of the first to go into like deep into Appalachia where there isn't a lot of civilization there. And uh, he sat down with like the local mayor or something of a small town. And he said, Hey, you know, I'm here. I want to, I want to mine Bitcoin. And the first thing that the mayor said to him was, well, how do you know that Bitcoin is here? <laughs> so, I love it. That's such a great story. That's an amazing story. <laughs> um, okay. Well, you can think of Bitcoin mining as a conversion of electricity into money, a direct conversion. Um, so typically, well, I don't want to go too deep into that, but but you're basically monetizing energy directly. And um, you can think of it as a, as a, there's a giant space of, of, uh, well, think of it like finding a needle in a haystack. Yeah. So you, you have a haystack and somewhere in there is a needle and you have to go through every single little thing of hay, whatever you call them. And eventually draw. Yes. No, no straw is a, is a thing. Hay is different. Hay is like, grass straw is different um okay but uh you, you have to basically you're, you're looking for the needle in the haystack right and yeah. you and a bunch of people and you're all expending energy to do that that's right yeah so you're running a little algorithm it's called the you'll hear it referred to as sha 256 sha 256 it's just a basic computer science algorithm it's it's actually nothing spectacular but you're basically running that algorithm trillions of time per second um, looking for that, that needle in the haystack. And the first person to find the needle uh, wins the block. And then they can, um, whenever they, they write the next block to the blockchain, they also include uh, a payment to themselves for, for the new Bitcoin in that block. Yeah. And, um, and it's like a 20, it's like a 26 character, um, string of numbers pretty much. Right. And then there's some letters in there too, that represent numbers, but you're kind of looking for the correct one of those. Yeah. <clears throat> um, the proof of work specifically was created by Adam back and it's just a basic, uh, rule set for it's, I think it's technically the number of leading zeros. So you're looking for X number of leading zeros in the, in the string of characters. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Cool. Yeah. I think that that sums it up. Um, and then the block reward is different um, depending on, there's pretty much a schedule. So um, there's what, there's about how many blocks. And I know there's about, there's a block every 10 minutes, roughly. Um, and right now the block rewards at six and a quarter Bitcoin. So every 10 minutes, some miner gets rewarded six and a quarter Bitcoin. Um, so there's about 900 Bitcoin that are coming online every day right now. And then, uh, in 20, when is it in 20, uh, four. So in the next halving mm -hmm. will happen. Yep. Yeah. So then it will drop to whatever it is. Three point one, two, five, two, five. Yeah. So, but yeah, I mean, how, how, uh, Darren Feinstein describes it is just like, 
you're just running a bunch of servers. I mean, they're just computers at the end of the day. It's just a server farm. Now, it's, well, we'll talk about this later with energy usage, but it's not like, it's it's a server farm, but it's not like it's providing, it's not like AWS or a Microsoft server farm or Apple server farm or whatever. It's just all the, all the server farmers doing is mining a bunch of Bitcoin. So yeah, th- there's a reason for that. We can get into that later. Okay, cool. So let me just go over the question one more time. But yeah, that's the algorithm. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's this comp. Oh, so I guess we can talk about a little bit um, difficulty adjustments as well, right? Um, because sometimes it gets too easy, a little too easy, right? And then it, the algorithm has to like automatically adjust to make it more difficult to stick to that like roughly 10 minute interval. Is that right? That's right. So distributed distributed networks are a very specific type of computer science and distributed networks are very difficult or they're complex because of latency issues. And so like, you know, sending a beam of light around to the other side of the world does actually take time. And so reaching consensus across distributed networks is difficult. So, um, what, but let me try to explain roughly the the distributed network of Bitcoin. So, um, yeah, every, roughly every 10 minutes, there is a new block. The, that's actually what the target. So it targets one every 10 minutes, but if you, if you watch the blockchain, you know, it's very frequent that like you'll get a new block a minute from now. Um, because it's all probabilistic. So if you were to, it all averages out to 10 minutes, um, per block. So like, if you were, see, it's, it is tricky. Like you gotta, gotta be a computer scientist, but the point is on average new block every 10 minutes, if there is too many, too much hash power, too much hash power on the network, which means that new miners have turned on their machines, then that would mean that um, that block time goes from 10 minutes down to let's call it nine minutes and nine minutes is not what we're targeting. So we're targeting 10 minutes. So what we can do is every two weeks, roughly, it's actually not every two weeks. It's every X number of blocks. I forget the number, every X number of blocks, we will adjust what is known as what is called the difficulty adjustment. When the difficulty adjustment determines how difficult it is to find um, a new block. And so you can think of it as like how many pieces of hay are in the haystack relative to the needle. If you have a giant haystack, it's gonna be very difficult to find that needle. If you have a very small haystack, it'd be very easy to find that needle. So the difficulty adjustment um, will be adjusted every X number of blocks in order to target that 10 minute per block. Um, pace. Um, and then once I do know this number, once every 210,000 blocks, you get a supply issuance adjustment. So it gets cut in half. This is what we call the halving. So, um, the previous halving was in, I think May of 2020. And, um, the next one will most likely be 
roughly May of 2024. But if it'll probably be a little bit sooner than that, because the hash rate is currently is like constantly growing, which means that um, the the miners are are kind of like ahead ahead of schedule. Um, but yeah, so that's, that's assuming that the miners can stay on through this uh, through this market too, right? Because there's all this there's economics with the miners, mm-hmm. but they that's paid right. certain amounts, you know, for their for their equipment that now is yielding them uh, less. In yeah, so U.S. So dollars mi- terms. Yeah, mining is a is a highly competitive field, <clears throat> and uh, it's uh you know margins are pretty razor thin. Depends on how how good you are. Some people mm-hmm. can have and your cost of electricity. Yeah, like you have with if you're a miner, you have real capital expenses. You have to buy machines, you have to buy uh, electricity, and you have to buy facilities. You have to pay people pay employees you have real capital costs that have mm-hmm. to be paid for um and so so roughly you negotiate with the utility companies <laughs> yeah uh, roughly this is like the um, in the in a in a pure theoretical sense this is like the adam smith um concept which is like the cost to produce something is roughly equal to the price that the market will pay for it so if it cost $20,000 to mine a Bitcoin, then Bitcoin's probably worth about $20,000, right? Um, but that's not strictly true. Those were just, I'm just like, yeah, using, that using actually it. flipped. Didn't it flip like recently where the cost, the average cost to mine a Bitcoin is actually a little bit more than the, yeah, it's called a hash rate capitulation. So the average miner is actually probably losing money right now. Yeah. Oh, and then the only other thing I was going to mention is you said they make uh, a difficulty adjustment. It's just the algorithm, right? It's the consensus of it's the network. Yeah. So it's the, um, all the okay. nodes are in agreement that um, it's based on an algorithm. They compute a number and they all agree that that's the, the number that they all computed. And then that becomes truth. Yeah. Gotcha. And then real, really quick too, um, just to, just make sure we explain the difference between a miner and a node in the proof of work protocol. So how I kind of think about it is um, like when the Quran was being written, like those words, that those were the miners. That's the new issuance of like truth or the new issuance of transactions, the people who are writing the new um, books of the Quran. And then the nodes are the people who memorized what, was written and they can all verify pretty much. Yes, that is what, what happened. Um, that's kind of, I've been using the Muslim faith, uh, as a way to understand nodes specifically, and it's really helped me. Um, but yeah, the pretty much the miners are the ones who write new transactions. The nodes are like the ones who verify, um, existing Mm -hmm. transactions. So that's right. Nodes can actually reject blocks if if the miner does not follow the rules. So let's say, for example, the miner issues um, more than 6.25 Bitcoin to themselves as the block reward. Let's say they issue themselves. So they win the block and they're like, okay, I'm going to write, write the block. Here's 10 Bitcoins to me. And they, they send that out to the network. All the nodes would reject that 
because it doesn't follow the rules. Hmm. Yeah. You see the node operators are ultimately in control. They, they have the, they have the highest degree of, of authority. Yeah. And they are also the most distributed mm-hmm. and low and it's the lowest, the lowest barrier of entry to become a node operator. You know, yeah, I mean, it, it used to be much cheaper than it is now, but even now it's still only like $300 to get the equipment to plug in. And then the, what the, you're paying, I mean, you're paying dollars per year probably to actually operate that from an electricity standpoint. Mm-hmm. It's just a c- consumer computer can run, can be a node. Yeah. I mean, technically probably even some really strong phones can be a node. Not that yeah. that's what happens, but I'm just saying from a, from a cost perspective, it's possible. Yeah. So I think that's a pretty good summary of what's going on in the background with the mining um, of Bitcoin. It's a really good question because that is a very misunderstood. um, And, and as I'm sure we'll, it gets down here. Yeah. The energy uses that, that really does. uh, Like I, like I said, just whenever you're having these conversations about Bitcoin mining and energy usage and like you I just remember that story that I told you about the guy who said, <laughs> well, how do you know they're here? Okay. That's a great story. Also that interview with, with Feinstein, uh, Darren Feinstein, really good talk. That dude is awesome. So, um, all right, let's keep moving. I think this number three is actually, I think we've answered part of it. So if miners are, it says if miners are completing the transactions and nodes are verifying transactions, and we compensate miners with Bitcoin, what happens when there is no more Bitcoin to mine and therefore no more Bitcoin available to compensate miners, those who are powering the network? Which I know this is a legitimate um, thing that, that the community is working through, right? I mean, we're talking about in like 2140. Yeah, so all Bitcoin will be mined roughly by, like the last Bitcoin will be mined in roughly the year 2140. We have you know 120 years until all the Bitcoin's gone, but the supply issuance uh, decreases at a, ne- a logarithmic rate, so it cuts in half every four years, roughly. Um, so that has significant impacts to the economics of mining, because all of a sudden, you know, yesterday you were making six and a half or six and a quarter Bitcoin, now you're making a little over three. Uh, so that's significant. Um, so the way it works is miners are also compensated for transaction fees. So if you are a user and you send a transaction through the Bitcoin network, you will pay a fee. Um, and the fee, it's actually an auction, the way fees work. So the miner will just collect the the wallets that sent transactions with the highest amount of fees. Um, so, so yeah, so miners also get compensated via fees. Um, they right now, okay. So I'm going to, this is the, this is the honest take right now. Fees account for like, honestly, I think it's like 1% of total minor revenue. So it's, uh, insignificant, totally insignificant. 
um, which means 99% of the minor revenue comes from block rewards from new issuance. And um, as the block rewards decrease, if the price of Bitcoin does not keep pace, then miners are going to get, be squeezed. They won't. They will. They will lose revenue. And so this is actually, in my opinion, the number one technical problem that is yet to be solved in Bitcoin. And we have plenty of time to figure it out. It's not like um, I'm really not worried about it at all. But it is a problem that needs to be solved. Um, and the problem is basically like. How do we pay miners? What market force funds the miners? Because it can't just be guys like me and Jordan. It just it, like I'm not going to be able to. I don't. My impact on the overall global financial system is too insignificant to to have an impact um, directly and via the current mechanism of paying for fees. Besides, I never even send my send my Bitcoin. I just sit still, so I never even have any costs um so anyway it's a it's a it's the number one technical issue that i think has yet to be solved and there are possible solutions that people are working through and uh, it's something to keep an eye on it's known as the security budget if you ever hear anybody use the words security budget this is what they're referring to they're referring to how do we make sure miners continue to be profitable basically? Cause we want the miners to continue to come into the network because the more miners that come into the network, the more secure the network is. Um, so that there's a, there's a natural desire for that to happen. I'll say that I do think that eventually that saturates, eventually that gets to the point where it's like, well, we, we kind of, don't need much more energy usage. We're kind of good. Um, and so we don't need this growth anymore. Now the hash rate can continue to grow because you can have um, natural technological innovation, which just makes, basically it's a more, it's a more efficient use of uh, energy. So there's natural forces there that I think will continue to grow. However, I do think that at some point we're like, there, there has to be a saturating point of like how much energy usage is the correct or is the optimal amount of energy usage to, to mine Bitcoin. And uh, to be determined, these things are extremely slow moving. They take a long time to play out. Yeah. Because you're also like, e even once we come up with possible solutions, they have to pretty much be okayed by the general consensus of node operators right mm -hmm. users market yeah. participants yeah so so yeah it'll uh but everyone knows that something has to be something has to be figured out um so so yeah that's a good question uh to be determined i will say all right so let's Let's keep moving down here. So as far as the energy use goes right now, it doesn't seem to be an issue for my research. Bitcoin uses about 150 terawatt hours of electricity in comparison to 24,000 or so consumed by the world each year, typically. So we're at 0.6%. 
Um, only around estimated 100 million people transact with Bitcoin, currently 1.3% of the population. So what does energy use look like if this number becomes 100% as it becomes the universal currency? Okay. Now, this is the most difficult question to answer because people have a lot of preconceived ideas about energy. Um, and rightfully so, because our society talks a lot about energy. Um, okay. There's so many, there's a lot of ways to attack this. I mean, it basically comes down to like, it's, there's a cost and there's a benefit, right? And well, you- yes, I think there's two things that come to mind. First off, I tell this to people, we live in a culture today where people think energy, energy usage, and the first thing they think is bad. They think, mm-hmm. oh no, we're using energy. And we, I, we, have, we have to really break down this, 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 cultural, um, this cultural thing because the opposite is actually true. If you want a higher quality of life, you want to use more energy. There is a positive correlation between and a very tightly coupled correlation between um, energy usage and quality of life. The number one issue with climate change is not that we have a bunch of fossil fuel burning people. The number one issue with climate change is that everybody, is there's too much, people are too poor, <laughs> poor people. You see, if you, if you raise the quality of life for people, they will consume more energy, but, um, but they do so in a, in a, in a, in a better way. Um, so that's the number one thing is that like people think energy usage and they think bad and understandably so because climate change is a real thing. Now, how real is it? How high of a priority that's up for debate. I don't know. But I do know it's a real thing. And I understand why, why people have this idea of like energy usage equals bad, but you got to break that down. You have to, you have to realize that that's not the case. The opposite is actually true. Okay. And also, sorry, one more thing. People get very animated about this topic. Like if you find people being emotional about things, uh, it becomes very difficult to find the truth. And so, uh, you know, just be careful what you listen to. Um, okay. The other thing is that, uh, people have this idea that like the energy use usage of Bitcoin will scale linearly. And so these, these words actually kind of speak to that, you know, currently 1.3% of the population uses it. What does the number come? What, what does the number go to if hundred percent of the population uses it? We see it doesn't scale linear, linearly. You can onboard the entire uh, population of the world and and use this. I mean, you could use the same amount of energy using today. Even um, the usage is is predicated on the market incentive. So if there is an incentive for the energy usage to increase, then the market will naturally collect that arbitrage. And okay. Now I want you to listen real closely about what I'm, what I'm going to try to say here. Okay. 
we live in a world where our energy grids are, there is so much opportunity in improving our energy grids. That is to say, they are so bad, basically, that there is a naturally occurring market force for energy users to energy grid producers to literally light their energy on fire and make money. Now I don't make the rules. Okay. I just look at the market. And when I, when I, what I see is that the energy grid is so has so much entrepreneurial opportunity, so much room for innovation. We're talking about a technology that's hundreds of hundred year old, right? There's so much room for opportunity that the market has literally found a way to, to not even use the energy in any sort of, you know, what uh, people would traditionally think as productive ways. The market has found a way to literally light that on fire in order to improve the energy grid. Cause you see, as when miners come onto the energy grids, it's not that they like <laughs> steal a bunch of energy from consumers. That's not how this works. Like, that's not how this works at all. The, the, you can think of the miners as, as, um, as aligned to, to the, to the incentives of the energy grid. They want a, a good energy grid. And so they come in, they actually improve the energy grids. They make them better. And it makes total sense because it's a digital technology working with, you know, analog technology. So there's tons of room for improvement. So, um, so yeah. Yeah. And, and the other thing you've got to think there as well is what kind of energy is being used, right? Is it energy that was, that was, um, that came in from coal or was it energy that is coming in from solar and wind? And, um, you know, we were just Kendall and I, when we were down in Lexington, we were chatting with a guy who runs up a solar farm company. And it's like, Bitcoin is actually largely important for renewables to, um, to actually succeed. He essentially said, and this is a guy who run, he's like his whole world is solar. Uh, is like, if we transition to renewables right now, everyone would hate it because it wouldn't work. It would break it, everything. Every the whole quality of life of everybody would go down. Yeah. And so, and people look, people want to talk all day about how they want to make the world cleaner and blah, blah, blah. But as soon as you turn their heat off, nah, the conversation changes entirely and understandably so. Yeah. Okay? Understandably so. And so what, what Bitcoin does for renewables is it it uh it see. Stabilizer. It's, it stabilizes it. Like we we want the market wants renewables to come to the market. Trust me, there is a ton of market incentive. All governments across the world are throwing money at it, which means the taxpayers are paying for it. Um, so it's like the limitation of renewables getting to market is not like big oil like stopping it or whatever. In fact, counterintuitively, the big oil companies are the largest renewable companies as well. And that makes total sense because they're energy companies. The, the, the resistive force is a technical challenge and the technical challenge is stability. Renewables are intermittent. The sun only shines for half the day when wind only blows some of the time, water sometimes dries up. Literally the Colorado river is drying up. Um, and so these renewable technologies are intermittent. And so you have to have some way to stabilize 
the, the technical solution with renewables actually, <laughs> and this is so funny to all like the ESG people, you actually want to build out much more capacity than you need. So you want to overbuild, okay? Which expends resources, okay? It uses uses more energy. Like you're, it's kind of very counterintuitive, but you actually want to overbuild the grid. You want to build, let's call it 2X the grid. And then what you do is you plug in a bunch of Bitcoin miners, which will act as what's called a base load. And they will uh, be able to monetize all the excess energy. And, and you have to have that because you have to have the market incentive in order for the renewables to proliferate. So you see, you have to, you have to be able to monetize that excess energy. So the other, the other piece that's really, really crucial about just the grid in general is that it's the only market on the planet that is a real time supply and demand, which makes it just very complicated to begin Correct. with. People don't, yeah, people don't realize that, do they? The energy that you're using right now to look at your computer was generated like milliseconds ago. Like it, it wasn't like stored in some battery and then gone. Right. Somewhere. Like it goes straight from source to destination. It has to be real time. So it's a very difficult problem. Yeah. And you can only move it so far. Like it's not like, you know, it's not like the internet where I can send an email to somebody in China. You know, I can't send them terawatts that far. We just don't no. have electrical. Yeah. That's, that's a good point. You can't, you can't transmit electric electrical currents over long distances because you, the wires themselves will, will, will burn off the energy as it's mm -hmm. transporting it. So it's yeah. actually a, electricity is actually a local phenomenon. This is, this is counter to oil. Oil is transportable. You can put it in a barrel, you can send it all the way around the world and burn it over there. And so you can move that energy um, around. It's, it's much more transportable. Um, so it, all that to say, there's just technical challenges to solve in, in Bitcoin. Uh, you know, in my opinion, that's the most exciting thing about Bitcoin right now. Yeah. Well, and then, and then one other piece is that the lightning network, I think really stands to, um, to solve this problem as well, because the lightning network, my understanding is that it uses a lot less energy than main chain Bitcoin. And, uh, so assuming we get to a world where, yeah, let's say close to hundred percent of people on the earth are using Bitcoin to transact, they're most likely actually going to be using the lightning network or some kind of layer two solution that only settles only settles on the main chain when you open a channel or close a channel, which is a lot. Uh, you do that a lot less than you would. Like if, if I wanted to send Kindle Bitcoin right now on the main chain, like that, that would go into the next block and go to the mempool and then it would clear or whatever. Whereas if we just opened up a channel together, we could send Bitcoin back and forth as much as we want. Infinitely. None of that is hitting the main chain. Yeah. Um, so the energy usage is a lot less. It would be zero. I mean, it's technically zero until you finally settle it to the main chain. Yeah. So in, in theory, lightning scales to infinity. Yeah. So I would say, I would say your question of, I would pretty much switch out if, if you're assuming a hundred percent of the population, they're not using, they won't be using the, the main chain. Like that's, that's why we've, that's why we've had things like Ethereum and Solana pop up is because Bitcoin with its one 
one megabyte uh, per block restriction, it, it just uh, it cannot scale to a Visa um, type of volume transaction. So there had to be for for Bitcoin, there had to be a layer two solution that was built. And there's, you know, right now there's Lightning and my understanding, there's also one called Liquid that are both built on Bitcoin. Um, so those would be actually the ones that are used for like day-to-day -day transactions um, if 100% of the population. And then the main chain would be mostly used by, you know, commercial banks and people who are, you know, trading larger amounts of money to settle um, so that's kind of another rabbit hole, I would say with the, with the layer two, but I would just say that that does play into the energy usage quite a bit. Um, assuming, assuming that that hundred percent or close to hundred percent adoption happens. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We so. could have a whole episode about lightning. <laughs> if we'll, we'll do that sometime. Yeah. Um, okay. Let's do this last, let's just do one more and then maybe we'll save the last we can kind of do one. these we can do these both together actually they're kind of the same okay. thing okay cool so essentially is uh is bitcoin truly a good store of value like gold if its value is highly volatile um and if it's not a store of value what is the value of bitcoin so right okay um i'm gonna address this so there's been this narrative that bitcoin is an inflation hedge it's got fixed supply, it's digital gold. That is a true narrative, okay? But we're not there yet. <laughs> now, Bitcoin is a very small uh, asset relative to other asset classes. And it's actually, it's still new, right? I mean, it's still young. Like, yeah. um, and you could think of Bitcoin actually as sort of like a venture capital investment. Um, you know, venture capitalists invest in early stage companies, then they help grow the company and eventually they IPO. Um, so, so Bitcoin is still young and young assets like that, they, they're subject to, to the whims of risk assets. So risk assets are assets that are highly risky. And the idea is like, well, we think one day in the distant future, this thing will be worth a lot. But we don't know yet. Um, that's a risk asset. And uh, that's what Bitcoin is right now. That's why it trades alongside of the NASDAQ and other tech stock and other risk assets. Um, the fundamentals of Bitcoin are that it is a, is a store of value in an inflation hedge like that. Um, but it's just going to take a long time for that to play out. Yeah. Essentially, the market has not decided that it is that broadly yet and I mean, so yeah nothing can go to a store of value that quickly that's yeah. just impossible yeah we're in the midst of price discovery everyone's trying to figure out what is this thing actually worth and um and again uh i think it might have been preston who made this point you know we're what is the measuring stick that we use right now to measure the volatility quote unquote of bitcoin it's the u.s dollar but no one really measures how volatile the U.S. dollar is either. You know, you just go in. It's because the U.S. dollar is treated as the third um, use of money, which is a unit of account. Um, people assume and, people assume stability in the dollar, so therefore, yep. it kind of exists actually because of that reason. But to to the point you're getting at, 
it's not actually, there's no real mechanism for that to happen. And if you look at the market prices, it's very not stable. Yeah. Like for me, one Satoshi still equals one Satoshi, you know, um, right now. And that's if you have kind of, if you're starting to take on that mindset of treating Bitcoin as a unit of account, there's three ways or there's three, what, utilities of money, there's store value, medium of exchange and unit of account. And so, you know, right now I'd say Bitcoin definitely hits on the store value. Um, we will see about the medium of exchange. I think it could with the Lightning Network easily fill that role. Um, but I think eventually people will start to use it as a unit of account as well. And then you're not necessarily measuring. I mean, you can measure it against anything, right? You can, what even what we were talking about at the top of the show, like measuring um, Solana in terms of Ethereum, you know, you can always just measure things back and forth. So, but right now, yeah, everything is measured in US dollars. And um, yeah, I would say the other reason for volatility is that right now we're, we are in a just very broad transition, like once in, well, I would just say it's very, it's going to be a very, um, it's, a, it's a fourth turning. Yeah. The fourth turning. Yeah. Um, which by the way, Kendall, I've got that book for you. It's in my car. Okay. Try to drop it off to you this weekend, but nice. yeah, if, it, if no one's read that, uh, that should be a book on everyone's list. In my opinion, uh, let me get the authors real quick. Fourth turning the fourth turning. I will link it in the show notes. Yeah. By William Strauss and Neil Howe. Um, that book. Yeah. just kind of talks about, uh, it, it helps bring some clarity on what's going on. I would say, um, I, want to, I want to say one more thing about the value of Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. Um, store of value is perhaps is when I think about my long, like my retirement account, long-term investments, store of value is what I think about with Bitcoin, but it's not the only type of value, value that Bitcoin offers. Another one that doesn't get sufficient credence in my opinion is the one that Jack Dorsey really tries to tries to promote which is that this is, we're talking about internet native money. This is money that exists natively within the internet. It doesn't really exist outside of it. And, and, and it's, the, it's the only one that is truly internet native. You see coins like Ethereum, Solana. These are clearly securities. They have a company. There's like a team that's leading them. That's a different thing. Okay, that is, that is a thing. I'm not, you know, it's just a different thing. We're talking about, money that is native to the internet. Now, if you just think about this from an abstract perspective, think about how much the internet has changed the world. The internet has changed the world significantly in the past 50 years. That's an understatement. Mm -hmm. And now you're talking about money that is exists within the internet. Like the level of utility has not even been, I mean, the server has not even scratched. Okay. It will go so deep. There is so much possible, especially when you tie in micropayments with lightning. Um, there is a lot of potential uh, value that will be driven from the utility of, of the thing. Yeah. I mean, even the fact that we are, I mean, we are in the same city, but you know, the fact that we're even able to do what we're doing right now, both sitting in our offices remotely and uh yeah would not have been possible it's gonna change everything it's gonna change everything yeah um cool well i think we'll end it there um hopefully that was helpful 
And again, we're happy to uh, we're happy to take on questions. And those are good questions. Those were uh, thoughtful and um, bring up some good points. And so, um, trying to think if we have any other announcements or anything. Don't think we do. That's so, it. See you next righty. week. See y'all. Bye.